Well, as you're grabbing your seat, grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 18. John 18. We are leaving chapters 13 through 17. Well, you may say, well, duh, Doug, that's what comes after 17 is 18. But if you've been around here for a bit, all the month of January has been in these chapters of John 13 through 17. And it's been all about an evening. It's been an evening where Jesus and the the disciples have been together. It's Passover week. It's, it's kind of like Super Bowl week in Jerusalem. And um, they had a very special night together, a pretty much a blow-your-mind night together from chapters 13 through 17. And we come to chapter 18, and let's just dig in. Here we go. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, referring back to the whole discussion of the night from 13 through 17, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he had, which he and his disciples entered. Now, so what's happening here is Jesus and the 11 are leaving the house where they've been at. They're leaving the city walls and they're going across the Kidron Valley and to the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. And let's actually bring up a picture here. This is a modern day picture of uh, uh, Jerusalem here, and you can see the wall there. There's a dome of the rock. The temple area is kind of all around there. Um, somewhere they came from inside the city back in the day. And actually where this picture is being taken is on the Mount of Olives. And in fact, that area between the wall and the Mount of Olives, that's the Kidron Valley. So they leave there and they come. And after dinner, they take a, a, probably a mile or two walk to come out to the Mount of Olives. Um, this is also where Gethsemane is. And here's kind of a picture that uh, represents the reality of it, of what was taking place in the day. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, who also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, it's interesting that John, as he's writing the account here, uh, he actually leads out, leaves out quite a bit of information, uh, the whole Gethsemane and prayer and all that took place there. And he just kind of jumps to the point. The synoptics, the other gospels really carry those events. And so John, as he's writing, uh, doesn't see the need to carry those events. He moves right on to the thing of Judas coming with the uh, soldiers. And notice in there, it says that it was a known place. It was well known. That's really interesting to me. If you knew that you were going to be sought out for the purpose of killing you, as much as you and I could, that would be typically the moment we would turn into Rambo mode. All right? I mean, they're coming to kill me. I would like to not be killed at the moment for what's happening. But where does Jesus go? Jesus takes the leaven to a known place, a well-known place, a place that Judas knows well because he as well as the disciples and Jesus commonly went there. What's the point? I'd put it this way. Jesus was not going to get caught. He was giving his life freely. So he goes somewhere. It's well-known. It's well-known. He's not hiding in a bunker. He knows what's going to happen, and he's... Watch what happens out of this as we see what takes place. By the way, 
who comes with Judas? Well, one of the groups that comes with Judas is, it says a band of soldiers. Now, the word that's used here in this terminology uh, is pretty detailed. In other words, it's, a, it's some Roman soldiers that would be a maximum of 200 Roman soldiers. Now, where do you go and you grab 200 Roman soldiers at the time? Remember, this is Passover. And the city grows from, say, 500,000 to 2 million to 2.5 million. And so that's the time where the Romans would bring in more military to take kind of like Super Bowl weekend here in Indianapolis. We'd have all these people coming into town, and so we get more police force and we get more security. And so they would be available because we're coming about to the middle of the night. Now, were there 200 Roman soldiers? I don't know. None of the Gospels tell us how many were there. But but let me note this. If the chief priests and Judas being in on this knew of stories such as Jesus calmed the water, speaking to the skies, and it obeys him. Jesus feeding 20,000 people from a few loaves and a few fish from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, I would think I would bring more than a dozen. Okay? I'll just say this. We've got a lot of good movies that represent uh, of this nowadays. And, uh, um, but one of the things they oftentimes miss is they kind of bring about this gathering of maybe 15 people to come and get. I... I Again, I can't prove it, but I think there were more than that. So there were the Roman soldiers there. By the way, uh, the Romans were Gentiles. Now, what you also have with these Gentile soldiers, the text tells us, is officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. How interesting is this? One, the world is represented in this event. The Gentiles are there being represented. The, the Israel, God's chosen people, are there being represented And how interesting it is, what a bunch of strange bedfellows in this event together as well. The Roman military, especially with the Pharisees, are you kidding me? But for this event, they were together. Interesting. So there they are, the political leadership, and uh, as well as the Roman leadership. And notice, by the way, at the end of verse 3, I think it's kind of interesting, John notes that there were lanterns and torches being brought now it was passover so it'd be a full moon but who knows it could be a clouded night um but they bring lanterns and torches to come and get the light of the world and they bring weapons to come and get the prince of peace oh the irony verse four then jesus knowing all that all that would happen to him get a load of that Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. (laughs) I wonder if when he said that, the ones, the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, you know, this could just be a normal statement of someone addressing the fact that I'm that one. Uh, I myself am that one. But I also wonder if in the back of their minds here, if they attach that to exodus and moses and god saying i am don't know but that's what he says i am he Uh, judas who betrayed him was standing with them verse six when jesus said to them i am he 
they drew back and fell to the ground. This is intriguing. Here they come and they, Jesus is the one asking, whom do you seek? He's not hiding. I lay down my life. No trying to get out of it. I lay down my life. And they answer, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he, I am the one. And they drew back and fell. It's interesting because there's kind of two main Greek words that are having there. Now, the first main Greek word is talking about they drew back. And that could mean anywhere from they kind of take out like, whoa, that was interesting. You know, they kind of step back to they kind of go to a knee to uh, they like fall. Uh, but then when you add the next word to it, the ground, it, it literally is referring to the dirt, to, to soil, to ground. When you put those two together, I, I, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but, but somehow their body met the dirt. There is power in the name. He says, I am he, and I don't know how that happened. I don't know what took place, but we clearly get the idea from this text that when he said, I am, kawam. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. There is power in the name. I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves this question. Does Jesus floor you? Does Jesus floor you? At the name of Jesus, does my heart, my soul, my mind just kind of step back? Or have we gotten in this day and age to where the name of Jesus is just kind of like every other name, but some respectfulness? Or is the name of Jesus used, we'll just say even by you, in a defamatory way of Jesus Christ. Hey, be careful. Because please understand this. There is power in the name. And it is at the name of Jesus that redemption resides. And if you have a struggle with using the name of Jesus in the right way, I call you out to change. His name should floor us. Verse 7. So he asked them again, who do you seek? Now you got the picture? Who do you seek? I am he. Kalam. Wait a second. Let me give you guys a second. Gather yourselves. Uh, get the dirt off. Let me ask you again. Whom do you seek? And they said, who? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, let's try that one more time. I know I'm kind of messing with you. So who, 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 what name were they asking for? Okay, and Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. <laughs> I just wonder what these guys are thinking. What hit me? What just hit me? 
I, I told them I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's talking to the 11 disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one of them. Uh, look to the left in your Bible, chapter 17, verse 12. It says, we talked about last Sunday in the prayer, Jesus is praying for the 11 disciples. And he says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Uh, which you gave, which you have given me, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, which is Judas. That was a big deal. And Jesus here is one more time protecting them. Just keep this in the back of your mind. We're going to bring this to the forefront again here in a little bit. Jesus was guarding and keeping them even in this moment. Let these guys go. If you want me, you can have me, but let him go. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, uh, by the way, sword, please don't think like this giant, you know, ninja you know four foot (laughs) lightsaber Uh, that's probably not it's probably i think that's a bad use of english here in the translation this is probably more of you know a a a a realistic kind of knife maybe a manly kind of knife but uh, a more like a machete or not just a giant sword Uh, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear and by the way, John adds in here, the servant's name was Malchus. He had more knowledge of who these people were. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Man, I, I got to tell you, I appreciate Peter. I genuinely do. Because who else here is sticking up for Christ? However, the Ginsu knife approach, maybe not. Maybe not the best approach. Uh, God bless the guy. You know, I mean, here he is. I'll protect you, Jesus. I got this. But also, my strength, my way. We can be such buffoons in life, can't we? I got it, God. Really trust me. I'm taking care of you, Lord. (laughs) Is buffoonery a word? No, we kind of that we're, we're good at that one. I'll just say this as well: how often we oftentimes derail the Father's plans. You know, times the sovereign God has allowed things to come into our life, and and we, oh God, please take this away. Oh, by the way, there's nothing wrong at all with praying that because the other gospels tell us that when Jesus was in Gethsemane praying, he was saying, oh, "Lord, Father." If there's any way you can take this from me, please take it. It's okay to pray, pray that. However, there was a conditional statement with that. If that's your will. But James chapter 1 tells us that a sovereign God at times allows things into our lives to that we would not get out of them, but we would stand up through them because God has a far bigger purpose and a bigger plan out of it than my comfort. And so sometimes we come into it, oh, God, take this away from me. Oh, God, take this away from her. Oh, God, take this away from him. And God's like, no, no, I've got a bigger purpose than this. I have a cup for them. And really what we should be praying is, oh, God, if that is the cup that you have for them, would you sustain them as they drink it? And they take it on. Let me ask you, uh, do you have a cup right now? Like kind of this trial kind of a cup? I don't know. Maybe there's health things going on in your life. Listen, believe me, trust me, the Lord knows about it. 
Maybe there's financial trials that are going on in your life. Trust me, scripture says he knows about it. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe for you, maybe for some, part of God's cup for them is actual poverty. I'm not saying like go to poverty. I'm just saying though in it, what's the cup God gives? And at times we push it away. And instead, at times, we need to realize, God, please take this away. But if your intention is to do something big out of this, if your intention is to grow me, if your intention is to impact others in this, oh, Lord God, may I be submissive to it? And may you sustain me through it? And may I hold the name of Christ high in it? My cup. Verses 1 through 11. By the way, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I've purposely left discussing one person out so far, and that's the person of Judas. So far here we see in Judas, he's in verses 2 and 3 and verse 5. Let me just kind of say it this way. What's the deal with Judas? What is the deal with Judas? I mean, how could someone live among the other 11 disciples and Jesus for three years And bag them like this. What tipped the scale? I'm just going to throw out a couple thoughts here on a couple things. These are Doug thoughts. I can't take them to scripture to validate any of these, but I've just wondered. I just want to think out loud with you. What tipped the scale for Judas? I think we clearly see that all along Judas had a thing for things. But I've wondered when we covered John chapter 12 and Mary, who's the sister of Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, I've wondered if that night was a tipping point for Judas. Where in it, Judas or, or Mary comes in and pours in, in, at the evening and pours the, the perfume, the nard, on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair. And Judas responds, it's like, oh, why didn't we sell that? It's a year's worth of salary. And we could have used that for the poor. Yeah, right, Judas, that was really where your heart was. I could have had my 20%. I don't think that's so much it. I just, honestly, this is just me. I just wonder if the fact when Jesus responded and he said, no, Judas, listen to me. This is a good thing. If that almost came across as like arrogance of over the topness. I don't know what happened with Judas, but Judas kept making choices all along the road that he became a willing participant as we talked about in, in, the, in the evening earlier when he took the morsel. That was the final option to bail out of his choices. But he joined in a partnership with Satan at that point. But he had become all of that willingness up to that point. I also wonder if Judas understood that Jesus was going to be beat to a almost dead pulp and crucified. I don't know for sure, but I actually think that he didn't. Because I, I just can't imagine, no matter how cruel someone could be, that you would in that day, knowing what crucifixion was all about, even your worst enemy you would want to have, go through that. How could he do I, I just, I, I, I'm actually wondering if in the chief priest, when they told him what was going to happen, they would just say, listen, we're going to rough him up, beat him up, kind of set him aside. Thanks, Judas. And Judas was seeing an end coming, and he wanted to cash out. I don't know, but what tipped the boy? I think it was a life of decisions to that point. Listen, choices have consequences. But yet I will also say this. Is it really that hard for us to understand why Judas would do this? I mean, frankly, let's get humble for a minute. 
Consider humanity today and the hatred for Christ. Do you realize that today, 300 Christians will be martyred for carrying the name of Christ by people in many places who are doing it under God's name? That means that in our time here, in this second service, that means that there will be five believers in our world today who will be martyred for the name of Christ. The world hates the name. And and why is it that we see young adults, 60 to 70% of young adults post high school, never return to any kind of real ministry service, a part of a church? Why, Why is that? Why is it that adults bag the local church as irrelevant anymore? Why is it that marriages now become so disposable? Why is it that churches become so disposable? Here's the reality. Sin brings along with it the reality of relationships are disposable. Judas lived in a disposable world, and we live in a disposable world. And the fact of the matter is, is we are all very close to having the ability to bag relationships. May we just humble ourselves in this? Judas is what I could be. Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. May we not see him that way. Is Jesus just seen as someone who's going to get you something? Or get you somewhere? And then when he doesn't, we bag that. May we not be that. May we not have that trait. Let's keep going. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, John moves us from Gethsemane, and we go over to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. I've got here a picture that's a, in Jerusalem and is kind of a, a model, huge model, of what uh, Israel looked like, Jerusalem looked like back in the day. And you can see the outer wall here. And it's this house right here, this one down in the bottom right. This is actually was, was where the house of Annas and Caiaphas was. This is kind of their palace with the outdoor courts, as the text will talk about. And so uh, Annas lived there, Caiaphas lived there, and some of the other family. Let me just tell, kind of get us a little familiar with who these guys are. First, Annas. Uh, Annas was high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. Um, after 15 AD... Five of his sons took over the position of high priest. And then he also had a son-in-law, one who married his daughter, whose name was Caiaphas, was also a high priest. And they would rotate around the title uh, for year by year of who was high priest that year. But the fact of the matter is, is Caiaphas was the beef behind the dinner. Uh, he was really the one who was uh, 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 over all of what was taking place. He was patriarch of the high priest family. 
And his reign was pretty much through the entire life of Christ. Caiaphas here holds the title of chief priest, but Annas really is the power behind all of it here. He was ambitious and fabulously wealthy. Here's to give you a picture of what is going on in Jerusalem during Jesus' day. Annas, the high priest, the man above all those men, was fabulously wealthy and he got his wealth out of the selling of the animals for the sacrifices. In other words, what God had put in place to be an honor, a a, a, a redemption uh, symbol of what was to be coming in the coming Messiah, the reality was he was profiting out of it, big time. And they were a family of massive wealth and they used religion for their wealth and their position. I mean, he was the chief priest, dude. And by the way, the Talmud even declares of them, he says, a woe to the family of Annas, woe to their serpent-like hisses. That give you an idea of what the typical person thought who understood what was going on. You look at verse 14, it talks about Caiaphas. And back in John chapter 11, uh, Caiaphas makes this statement about, you know what, it'd be better if one guy die than the whole nation go. What's he talking about? Take Jesus out so we can retain power. It was already decided. So what we have here is we have Jesus now is taken over here to Annas and being tried uh, before Annas. But our picture doesn't quite fit it because it was during the dark of the night. So let's darken it up a little bit. It was during the dark of the night that all this was happening. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and said to another disciple. Now, one of the discussions is, who's this other disciple? Could this have been some follower of Christ? Absolutely, it could have been. Um, But the traditional view has been that this is John, uh, the one who's writing this letter. And uh, I would say that it probably is. I think John includes some pieces of information, pieces of information like he knows the name of Malchus, who's there and here just a little bit. This sounds kind of Columbo-like here, but just a little bit. He talks about even that there's a charcoal fire. Uh, Charcoal fire wasn't always the norm. How did he know that? Well, the Spirit of God could have let him know that. But there's just pieces of information in here that I think it's very likely that this other disciple with Peter is John. So I'm just going to say it's John, but kind of think it in parentheses because we don't know for sure, okay? But how cool is it that Peter and John are still hanging in there? Way to go, man. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, the other disciple, that's one of the points where people are like, well, how could John have known the high priest? Um, He was a fisherman. Well, odds are that it wouldn't, he wouldn't, but chances are that his family actually supplied the fish directly to the family. Why would they do that? Because it was also political and there were people who would want to poison his food and take him out. And so they built a relationship with a single supplier. So that's possibly what happened. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, I I think is John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, what did he say? I am not. Isn't it interesting how up above we see Jesus saying, hey, who are you looking for? And he says, I am he. Who are you looking for? I am he. 
And now we jump down to, hey, aren't you one of those guys? I am not. By the way, turn over to John chapter 13. In case you don't know the full story of what took place here, earlier in the evening, John chapter 13, we find here in verses 37 and 38 what's happening now. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had said he was going to be leaving. The disciples are troubled. Verse 37, it says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He did saw it with a Ginsu knife thing, but not quite here. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And he's brought in the door and the servant girl asks him, are you not one of those? And he says, what does he say? I am not. And the process has started. Back to chapter 18. Verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. John now takes us back to the high priest and Jesus. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. It makes sense. I mean, if you're the high priest, you want to find out, especially if in a political structure, you want to find out how many followers do you have? What's the risk of this? And so he's asking him about their, the disciples and their followers. And then secondly, they're asking him about what he believes. How interesting is this? They're asking Jesus about his theology. Dude, you are talking to the wrong guy. (laughs) Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. Interesting. Jesus refers right away. I teach in the place where the people gather. That's where I teach. And I teach there openly, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, with the back of his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This whole trial is a big, giant farce. This is an utter mistrial on what's happening. There's no intention to give Jesus a fair hearing in this. None whatsoever. In fact, the laws of the day are being broken all over the place. Here are some of them. Jesus' arrest was a result of a bribe in that day. That was illegal. No trial was to take place during the night. This one was happening between 1 and 3 a.m. That was illegal. In cases of, uh, or Jesus was asked to incriminate himself. That was illegal. In cases of capital punishment, Jewish law did not permit the sentence to be declared until the day after the accused was convicted. That wasn't going to happen. Just examples of the laws are being broken all over the place because this was a setup for murder. And at any moment, any time, 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At any moment of time, he could have just rained heaven on them. And then he stood there with this scoundrel, this creep of a man, this religious heretic, this religious fake of a high priest standing, questioning the chief priest of heaven about who he was. Oh, my word. The arrogance of the situation is astounding. But I also want to ask ourselves, are we really that far from it? Humanity in our world today we love clinging to the religious things that we do to validate who we are. In our day, the name of Jesus is hated. But let's make it even more personal. How often do I get pious about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ? How often do you and I struggle with the battle of who are you to tell me what to do? I just want to make sure as we read these that we don't get arrogant and go, what a bunch of buffoons when we are inches away from the opportunity ourselves. For Judas, Jesus was a means to a personal end. For Annas and Caiaphas, Jesus was the getting in the way of their end. Well, now the text, and let's finish out the text here, turns to Peter. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Again, it's interesting that John knows all of this information of exactly what happened. Asked, uh, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. And Luke twenty-two sixty-two tells us that at that point in time, Peter wept bitterly. And in the other gospels, it tells us that at that third time, they were, he was in, and you can kind of see in this house area, Peter hiding around or somewhere in this area where he had eye contact. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus made eye contact with him at the end. Can you imagine that moment? Oh, bless his heart. We all know what it's like when we were a kid doing something wrong. Had the hand in the candy jar. Mom or dad and our eyes connect. It wasn't a love moment. Can you imagine this one? Just earlier that night, you said, listen, I will guard you. I will not leave you. And cock-a-doodle-doo. We aren't too far from Judas. We aren't too far from Annas and Caiaphas. 
And we all know what it's like to be a Peter. Three denials. And they so drive home. Just one more time. Turn to the left, John 17. I want to read the first part again. Verse 12. Jesus praying for his disciples. While I was with them, he says, Father, I kept them in your name. And Father, while I was with the ones that you had given me, I guarded them. Oh, this has, I think, more meaning seriously than I've ever really realized. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't think we grasp how utterly dependent we are on the keeping, guarding reality of the Trinity. We are frail. We are incapable. We are unable. And we are fully dependent on the Godhead Keeping us in him. (laughs) Think of this. Jesus just said earlier that evening, Father, I keep them and I guard them. We are right now in the process to where Jesus is being taken away from the disciples. And in all reality, Peter and John here and the other ones are functioning all on their own. Now, remember in the timeline of redemptive history, Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the paraclete, the the one that would come alongside the Spirit of God, Jesus said, "I, I must leave so that he will come. That has not happened yet. They're on their own. Jesus is over here, and they're on their own. And look what happens to Peter as an example. Peter can't even admit that he was one who followed him. And I understand all the scary and confusion that's going on. Please, I get that with him. But yet it's like on his own, he can't keep himself there. And then in the timeline, Jesus is being taken away to the cross. Peter's on his own. Then Acts chapter 2 happens. The the Spirit of God comes and indwells in the believer. And then how do we find Peter? Peter is rocking it out for Christ. He is proclaiming the word of God with boldness and people are coming to Christ. Why? Because he on his own got it. I've got to say, I'm just, I'm being very transparent with you as I'm thinking through the theology of all this. I'm getting more of a sense that no, what was happening is Christ left. And the only reason he was able to do what he was doing is because the spirit of God came and told him, listen, you and I cannot be kept and guarded on our own. We are fully dependent on the work of God. We can't brag about anything. Because even my staying in Christ is ultimately a gift and a work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, I just have to bring to the table this. Are you doing it on your own? I mean, really. I've just been asking myself here this week. Had a conversation with someone just after the first service, just making a comment about how, you know, we're just, we're just so proud. We can so do this on our own. No, we can't. But we con ourselves into thinking we are. And I just want us to ask the question, are you attempting the Jesus walk on your own? Because if you are, it's going to end up looking like Peter in this period of time. Let's wrap it up with this. 
I think so far in John chapter 18, I'm going to say we've seen three people, Annas and Caiaphas. I'm kind of lumping together because sadly they were so much the same. We've seen Judas and Judas and Annas and Caiaphas and Peter. And really all three betrayed Christ on this night. Judas saw Jesus as the means to an end. Judas was going to be king on the throne in the kingdom that would be set up and Judas got in the right place at the right time and he's trying to ride his coattails into all good stuff for him. Judas loves stuff. He was into Jesus as long as Jesus had the potential to bring him what he wanted and what he yearned for. But that's not how the Lord works. Jesus isn't so much here for me as Jesus provides me the opportunity to be here for him. Serving him and representing him and loving him and adoring him and following him and obeying him. But for Judas, Jesus was all about what would be the next thing this awesome world would provide him. Hey, listen, it, it really, it, if we love the world, if you're one who's just, if you're honestly stand before God and God would say, you know what, you dude, you really do love the world. And we all struggle with this. If you really love the world, it is really hard to repent because the world is so lovely in our eyes. Is the world lovely or is the name of Jesus lovely for you? If the world is really all that lovely, it's going to end up like Judas, self-destruction. One way or another, self-destruction. For Annas and Caiaphas, they saw Jesus as, get, Jesus as getting in the way, getting in their way. They had no need for Jesus. They were chief priests. By the way, can you imagine when their eyes open up on the other side? And one of the first things they see is the risen Jesus Christ. Holy cow. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Listen, have you come to that place where you've seen who Jesus really is? Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But redemption is about doing so here and now. Judas fell into self-destruction. Honest and Caiaphas fell into self-righteousness. Last one here, Peter. <laughs> I really don't know how to make this cute fitting with the other ones. So I just say this. Peter saw Jesus and he was scared and confused about the end. He didn't know what was going on, bless his heart. He lied and he denied that night. Absolutely. But I have to say he was following after Christ. And we see that he continued to follow after Christ and was a John 15 one who abided in Christ and produced fruit. All by the grace and the goodness of God. Scared and confused and wondering how it was going to go. Frail, absolutely. But a sinner that was restored and fell back under the serving of a fantastic Savior. Well, let's pray. Lord, I just kind of want to leave these at that point. And 
I would just pray that the Spirit of God would would use these realities, these stories, these truths and conditions of these various individuals, and it would challenge us into considering where are we and who are we. And Lord, I, I would, I would pray if there's anyone here this morning that really maybe they've been thinking and living like Judas and Jesus is all about getting me some things. Jesus is kind of like my gift bag giver instead of my Lord and Savior whom I need to serve. Lord, I pray that if that's the case, that person would come to a place and just turn and confess before you and get after following you seriously. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that would be more like an Annas or a Caiaphas who frankly has been living in kind of their own pride of who they are, thinking they're in a great condition and in a great place and Lord, maybe just self-righteous. Oh God, may we not go there and if we are, may we repent and turn. Lord, we all get Peter. Oh, the times we have failed you. They are so numerous. But even though Christ looking to Peter, knowing of his denial of him, He still continued to the cross. What a Savior. That's why we need saving. Oh God, keep us. Guard us. And may we do relationship with you in the fantastic name of Jesus.